Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Landway. In this episode of the Planetary Regeneration Podcast, I'm interviewing my friend Dan Mapes. Dan is an entrepreneur and has been working in the technology industry for over 20 years, and he's really a brilliant, articulate guy the big heart, and uh, he's what I would refer to generally as a as an intelligent techno-optimist. And my listeners may recognize I'm oftentimes, even though I'm in the technology industry, I'm techno-skeptical. <laughs> but the way that Dan articulates certain ideas, such as the, the need to sort of evolve in autonomic nervous system for our planet and the role that that plays in planetary regeneration, I think is very compelling and and really important to consider. And so um, I hope you have a fun time with this interview. Dan and I had a great time and uh, I had to run to go be with family, but um, I think we could have kept talking for another couple of hours. So I hope you all enjoy this one as much as I did. And thanks so much, Dan, for taking the time to chat. Yeah, happily, happy, happy to talk to you again. Last time uh, I saw you, we were in Aspen. It was a little more than a year ago. A lot has happened. Lots happened. I mean, uh, we were there uh, really around planet uh, uh, health and uh, climate issues. And uh, obviously, a lot that's happened has not been great. I mean, uh, it's amazing with all of the work, all the people all over the world uh, working against uh, climate uh, problems. We're not making a dent. It's really frustrating. Right. So that's sort of, you know, I have the sense that that is that sort of coordination issue is something you think a lot about and is kind of at the heart of your work with, I mean, for many years, but also particularly with the Versus Project. So it's absolutely true. You know, it's it's funny. I I always uh, joke with my friends. I said the reason they're burning the Amazon down is I have not been able to be articulate enough on why they shouldn't do that. (laughs) Right. <laughs> so you have to take personal responsibility at some level. You know what I mean? Like this is our planet. You know? Totally. So, and uh, Greta coming over uh, to uh, speak to the Congress and everything is just wonderful. You know. Uh, but we did feel that uh, uh, technology can be an aid. So uh, we developed this uh, project called uh, Versus. Uh, you can go check it out at versus.io. And really, it's a uh, a new coordination uh, protocol that links artificial intelligence together with uh, Internet of Things and uh, gives us a better kind of planetary management uh, tool. And our bodies, uh, uh, while I'm talking to you right now, I'm kind of forming words in my brain, but I don't actually think in words. I think in deeper kinds of images and feelings and emotions and things like that. Then I convert them into English or Chinese or Spanish or whatever language I'm talking in. And I use my kind of neocortex and my upper parts of my brain to kind of deal with all that. But actually, a lot of my brain is doing something else completely. It's maintaining the health of my body uh, right right now. So uh, if I get up and I walk up a set of stairs, I don't have to go, hmm, that's 25 stairs. I probably should raise my heartbeat by 10 beats per minute. You know, I don't have to do that. The autonomic nervous system has figured all that out. It's kind of like an internal AI we have to maintain homeostasis and just keep us uh, healthy. So we breathe more, so we get more oxygen in, the heart beats faster, oxygen gets to the cells, and we burn more oxygen when we 
when the muscles uh, work to run or climb stairs or anything like that. Well, we, we want to do the same thing with the planet. So um, we want to create a nervous system for the planet that uh, is observing the planet and the planet's health and alerting us uh, when there's a problem and maybe even automatically doing some fixing things uh, while we uh, collectively address it. And so, uh, so we built this uh, new protocol and uh, it, it sounds crazy, but it, when you think, when you really hear the logic of it, it makes sense. Hmm. Uh, in 1994, uh, Tim Berners-Lee released the uh, World Wide Web Protocols. And we type in HTTP every day without really thinking much about it. It's yeah. just the way we transfer information around the internet. Uh, so we use HTML to code our documents and HTTP to connect them and move them around. But what does HTT actually translate into? Well, it translates into hypertext transfer protocol. Oh, so it's about transferring text across the network. Uh, no, no, we want to look. We want to be looking at the Amazon. We want to be getting measurements from IoT devices uh, on the ocean, uh, you know, to understand temperature warming. We want to. We, we want to actually work the way our body works. If I cut myself. The white blood cells are sent there. I mean, I don't have them. My brain doesn't have to send them. The autonomic nervous system sends the white blood cells to repair the body. And so if, we've got, if we can't measure it, we can't manage it. So to have a measuring system for the entire planet, first at the sensor level and then at a software level, uh, really becomes critical. And then sending those messages around all over the world uh, in the form of like a geospatial uh, look at our planet in 3D, where we can zoom in and out. Well, that's way beyond hypertext transfer protocol. Mm -hmm. uh, so we had to create a hyperspace transaction protocol, which is, allows interactions in space, which is what we're doing all the time. Why didn't Tim do that originally? Well, because in 1994, our computers were really slow, and our network was really slow. And the only thing we could really deal with was text. And then later, some images. You might remember the first websites. I mean, the images on the websites had to be like postage stamps because they would take so long to load. Now we're watching Netflix on our, on our smartphones. Yeah. So the network speeds have really increased. Well, because they've increased, they've also gotten graphics chips and these things for game. Now we can actually deal with geospatial information. And so the number one mapping company in the world is ESRI, E-S-R-I, uh, they're 50% of the GIS uh, business in the world. They provide maps, detailed maps around resource management, forestry, the health of the Amazon. They are the map experts from satellites to groundwork. Uh, they're, they're masters. And so we partnered with them and uh, we built this HSTP so that we now can zoom in on any part of the world and uh, bring, uh, bring intelligence uh, to it and maybe management decision making. Then we partnered with MIT, and MIT is working on something really strange. I've been arguing for a long time that we're happy to let you cut down a tree in the Amazon. We just want the price of the tree to be correct. <laughs> it may be that that tree is worth a million dollars when you calculate its oxygen-producing capabilities over the next 50 or 200 years. You know? So if you want to cut down that tree, I mean, the wood is only worth maybe... Uh, $50,000, so nobody's going to cut down the tree. So we need a better accounting system for our resources, and uh, we're working with a really great team at MIT and Santa Fe Institute on uh, uh, linking what we're doing to kind of uh, a global ecological accounting system. 
And at that point, uh, then uh, if a company wants to do something which is ecologically damaging, well, then they pay, they pay the planet for it, you know, and uh, it's like a tax and or like any license fee or anything. And so uh, so this is one way of getting at it because uh, this uh, top-down model we have of uh, trying to invest in large-scale climate uh, projects isn't really cutting it. What we need is how did the World Wide Web get built, right? It's millions of people worldwide working decentralized. Nobody's telling them what to do. They're just writing a new blog about uh, the Amazon or they're uh, loading pictures up into uh, up onto Facebook and talking about it. So what we really want is, uh, I think, uh, what we happened with the websites. We've got more than a billion websites now, and uh, nobody, nobody has to check in. You can just make a website. We want climate projects like that. We want a billion climate projects. We want them coming from the bottom up. And so uh, Versus is a really uh, good tool to help in that. Uh, it can crowdfund. Uh, it can provide designs. It can provide uh, online assistance. And uh, in this way, we might be able, uh, over this uh, next decade, to get an explosion of uh, local uh, bottom-up uh, climate change projects. And this is one way we can maybe get to your, I know what you're really uh, deep into is regen. And this is what we're really where we, how we have to get there, I think, rather than the, only the top-down model. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with pretty much everything you're saying. So there's a couple different ways that the conversation could go at this stage. I, I think one thing we could do is, you know, I have a set of questions because we've been working on something very similar from, you know, I think some similarities, some differences. I so yeah, we're, we're, it's it's, it's going to be totally collaborative during the next uh, six months. It's finished. A shudder of thinking about too deep of a partnership with Esri. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just actually, I, like actually, I love them, and they can be so hard to work with sometimes. So anyway, um, they've, been, they've actually been great. That's fantastic, been. and they do, and they are like they have all the resources. Undoubtedly, the industry leader in GIS. So we could talk a little bit about just you know what is the intersection between region network and versus. Where are collaboration points that are mutually exciting? We could talk about that. I also, uh, with this podcast, I like to get into a little bit of the deeper why. I think you did a really brilliant job at outlining sort of the functional, how we create or how the planetary nervous system is creating itself (laughs) through us as humans. Sort of this sort of Pelhard Deschardin, no sphere, you know, and I love the analogy of the autom- autonomic nervous system. I think that that's brilliant. And clearly, there's some deeper questions that start to arise because even we can see with the analogy of the autonomic nervous system, sometimes our nervous systems go haywire. Sometimes <laughs> our immune systems go haywire. So, sort of like some of the devil's advocate questions that come up that I think are really great to sort of like dispense with uh, quickly. So that then we can move on to the, the deeper collaborative how and just sort of like grassroots, open source, let's get some shit done Miss right. all of this. You know, the, the questions that arise for me are, you know, what are the checks and balances? What do we need to learn from the way that living systems create automatic functions and the risk of that, right? And, and what are the risks of creating a planetary digitized autonomic nervous system, if any. And, you know, I think some of our listeners who are 
techno-skeptical may have images of like Skynet and Terminator, you know, <laughs> and, you know, yeah, just what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, totally, it's totally similar to the thermostat in your house. You got yeah. like, I need to be 72 degrees. And so you set the thermostat and you don't really have to go and be putting logs on the fire or doing all this stuff all the time. We know enough about uh, the health of the planet. That we can set the thermostats uh, collectively in a way that leads to health. But the, the real issue is, can we do it any worse than we're currently doing it? I mean, we have a president in the White House who's getting the EPA and firing scientists. I mean, come on, anybody contributing, I celebrate. Everybody bring your A game. We, we've got a problem around the planet. You know, we have an emergency. This is an IC, this is an emergency room problem, not a, uh, not a long-term think tank strategy problem. Uh, yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. One of my uh, friends oftentimes says, if you stab your mother with a knife, it's yeah. not good enough to take it halfway out. Right, exactly. Like, Thank you have you. to take it all the way out and go to the emergency room right now. You don't have time to be like, oh, it was an accident, I tripped, or, oh, you know, whatever the circumstances of how it happened, like, you act now swiftly, and yeah, so... I mean, I agree with that. And I, you know, I was just having this conversation and I was sort of pointing out that I've identified four major paradigms or approaches for addressing the climate crisis. You know, the, the first being top-down policy. And I think that, that in some way, the climate movement right now, the youth climate movement and, and what Greta is doing is sort of saying, hey, everybody, we have democratic institutions. Let's pressure them into taking the appropriate action to generate top-down policy change. We need to do this now. Okay, great, you can't argue with that. That's sort of number one. It's problematic in certain ways because as you noted, it doesn't unleash the grassroots agency of billions of people to take action and be creative. Yeah, so, totally. Okay. But, but, it's, but it's part of it. I, but it's we, part of it. And we, we don't, have, we yeah. have to do everything. And then number two is sort of like opt out. Create a permaculture farm, join an eco-village, don't buy anything from anybody who's doing, you know, anything that's, you know, um, questionably detrimental to ecosystems or the biosphere. Tell me, we support those people too. Exactly. But, but also unlikely to result in no, the, right. the kind of transformation that's needed in the time frame that is needed. That's correct. But at least they're no longer contributing to the problem. Yeah. Right. Number three is this sort of like spiritual paradigmatic transformation of consciousness, which is sort of the hundredth monkey, sort of like- Huge, huge hugely important. We, we'll get to this place where people will be operating from a paradigm in which it's so blatantly obvious that this sort of like zero sum game bullshit leading to degradation of the very life giving foundation of our civilization, it just seems silly and nobody will do it because we're just more enlightened than that. And, and I, would say, I would say the percentage of people that are awake to this issue is higher today than it was 20 years ago. No doubt about it. Rachel, Rachel Caution wrote Silent Spring back in 1957 or something, and yeah. nobody was aware of it. And so it's growth. And it and created a watershed. And the EPA was created out of that movement. And yeah, it's really important. And then I think, I think there's advances on that front as well. And education is part of it. And part of it is the spread of mindfulness meditation and all kinds of things. Absolutely. 
and it's and it's global. I mean, uh, even uh, you see indigenous tribal leaders and uh, members in uh, the Amazon, you know, really speaking up and getting a voice and using technology to share their vision with the world. So, I mean, there are things happening at that level as well, where it's an awakening, I would say, yeah. on a monetary basis. We're still not at over 50%, uh, but it's growing. Yeah, exactly. And then the, the, the last, which I think, as you're noting, and I fully agree with, this is a all-hands-on-deck situation. They're not mutually exclusive. The, the last paradigm that I've identified is, I think, what some people mistakenly refer to as a market approach. I think a market is part of it. Like, yeah. like Markets are part of it. But I'm struggling to name it exactly, but it's more on re-engineering the rules of the game. And that shows up through financial instruments or it shows up through the technological infrastructure that people connect. We can sort of refer to it as a market approach for now, but I have the sense that there's something deeper than that. No, it, might, it might be, uh, it really is a, a change in the way that we operate with our economies. I'm yeah, it is. It is addressing the fundamental economic relationships, the flow of information. It's like the triple bottom line idea. You know, it's like if it's just like profit, profits first, everything else be damned, of course, then the planet's going to get ruined. I oftentimes think of it, and I'm curious how this resonates with you. It's in a way, it's more about defining what profit means. I could completely agree. Of course. You know, absolutely. You've got it. That's what I meant about a planetary accounting. And, and what you were you talking wanna, about, you like, wanna, what do you want to pollute cost? Yeah, you want to pollute this river? $100 million, be my guest. You know? Right. <laughs> You're going to pay. And really quick, uh, you'll watch. Behavior changes really fast. All the talking does nothing. Uh, when you actually put an accounting to it, uh, cool, there's a tax for that. <laughs> to me, there's two major questions here that we face every day at Region Network because I think we're working in a parallel and slowly converging arc versus and region network. And the two challenges that I see, one is technological, which I actually think is not as big of a challenge, really. Um, We have have all the tools to do what we need to do in terms of this sort of planetary nervous system come planetary accounting system come planetary sort of knowledge infrastructure. That's all. Totally. What what the bigger challenge is, is the buy-in from a critical mass of the sort of like market that leads to the appropriately pricing the environmental goods, services, and functions. In this. Well, that's probably, I'd say that's part of it. I think there is another thing, another category that we don't have and that nobody's really ever imagined could be possible. And that would be an empowerment uh, category where uh, towns and villages and tribes and whatever uh, suddenly have access to, there used to be a really lovely catalog called the Whole Earth Catalog. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember the Whole Earth Catalog. The subtitle of the Whole Earth Catalog was Access to Tools. Mm. And what they did is they did kind of like uh, movie reviews or or whatever of of every tool on the planet and uh, like how it could be used for sustainability or other kinds of things and where to get it and what it costs. So here was this beautiful catalog of like advanced tools. And uh, they still do uh, some of that work. Uh, Kevin Kelly at Wired still puts out kind of a access to tools kind of thing in the spirit of the Whole Earth Catalog. And uh, what I want to do uh, and what what Versus can do 
is unleash the combination of crowdfunding and crowdsourcing mm -hmm. at the climate level. If we could do that, it would be incredible. I think in, uh, 19, I think in 2017, uh, there was this new idea of ICOs, and uh, they weren't very well figured out. Uh, they, a lot of them were bad. Some of them were great. But within the span of 12 months, $60 billion, $60 billion was raised for a whole bunch of blockchain projects totally. all over the planet. And uh, uh, it was remarkable. It was like one of the biggest flowering. There were more money being spent by just average people to launch things than all the VCs combined. Yep. Yeah, it's amazing. And, and imagine that pointed at the climate. A hundred percent. There you go. There you go. That's all I'm saying. So now. The SEC came down and said, look, that stuff is no good. Uh, grandmothers are losing their money. You can't do it that. You know. But I think we'll, we'll find a mechanism, and we're working with lawyers on this, uh, where we can unleash proper global crowdfunding for climate projects. And uh, uh, we protect it with boards of advisors and things like that. So the problem with the, that the SEC had with the ICOs is, uh, you know, three people uh, would just write a white paper and say, hey, we're going to build this thing. They, get $20 million, and they just go like, well, we got the $20 million. why bother to build the thing? So it was a kind of a scam. Uh, but if we uh, properly uh, define the uh, governance models around these ICOs and observe them, uh, then um, I think we could uh, really see uh, that same uh, application that we saw with the ICOs, but around climate. Because everybody, everybody cares. They just feel totally frustrated and disempowered. What can I do? It's overwhelming. So then they just put it out of their minds and go to work. Well, totally. And, and everybody just... We, give them, a, we yeah. give them easy mechanism. Look, you can, you can crowdfund. There's a town here in, uh, in Kenya or a town in Alabama that wants to put in a solar array. And it's $300,000. And uh, we're going to tokenize the thing and crowdfund it just like we did with ICOs. And now we're going to create like a global power company. And anybody that owns the tokens owns the power company. Well, then suddenly you might have billions of dollars pouring in to build microgrids all over the planet and the locals can actually build them and run them and pay for them with tokens and you get this new token power economy that's totally clean and sustainable. And there's a lot to unpack there, but I wanted to just give you that sense that all I'm really trying to communicate is, hey, we saw some interesting behavior in 2017 around the ICO model. Let's harness that and aim it at the climate. There's a lot of details in there, legal work and other kinds of things and governance structure mechanism, but those are solvable. Let's capture that behavior is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, what I'm about. hearing is that there's, you're identifying that there's latent desire, demand even for action and participation and investment. And that there's a lot of citizens of the world that are happy to chip in five bucks or 500 bucks or 5,000 bucks into a variety of different projects, especially if they have a stake in the success. And you can, you can run it just like Kickstarter. I mean, Kickstarter is amazing. I mean, uh, people go on the Kickstarter and look, we're going to try and build this thing. It's really cool. It's going to, you know, well, even the, uh, even the uh, virtual reality company, Oculus, started on Kickstarter. Yeah. And went on there and said, look, I figured out a way to make a virtual reality pair of goggles for under $1,000. There were $10,000 pretty much at the time. Uh, here's, I can make one for, I think, 500 bucks. If you'll... Uh, if you'll give me money now, I'll ship you guys the first ones for $300 at half price or whatever. And then I'll sell them for $600 later. And he wanted to get $250,000 to get all the parts together to build it. 
Well, everybody went, what? Virtual reality goggles for $300, $400? You know, he raised $2.5 million on Kickstarter. Yeah. So then he went out and got himself a proper building and a proper team, and they started to build these things. And so a venture capitalist came over and said, wow, there's a lot of interest. You raised $2.5 million on Kickstarter. That indicates there's a market for this. We'll give you another $20 million. And so then, uh, oh, wow, now we can build better and get real engineers and more R&D. And, and the thing grew. And then somebody said to Mark Zuckerberg one day, uh, about a year or so in, he said, hey, there's this kid down the street here making these virtual reality goggles. You want to you go take a look at them? Just, you know, curiosity, he's a tech guy. Yeah, let's go see it. They go over and, uh, and Mark puts the, uh, the goggles on. It's like Ready Player One. You know, it's like a beautiful 3D world. And Mark could just see like, friends going to nightclubs with their friends to hear the best DJ play and, you know, whatever. And he's going like, oh, my God, no one will ever come to Facebook again once they get to this. So he bought the company for $2 billion, you know, before they even got a product out practically, you know. Yep. And so I'm just saying we can unleash that kind of stuff because without that two, original $250,000, which became two point five, he would never have started the company. It was too weird of an idea. He had to go to other nerds out there that saw what he saw and give him, like you said, $300 each, right? Yeah. Uh, rather, rather than to a VC saying, hey, I need $10 million or $2 million. They're going, no, no, well, you can't make virtual reality goggles like that. So on the one side, it's crowdfunding. On the other side, it's crowdsourcing. So local people go like, here's our biggest climate issue in our town or in our area. We've got a polluted river. We've got this plant upstream that's making paper and dumping it into the river or we don't have uh, we've got to use diesel generators to make our power or whatever it is right so they're like putting those up on like a like a climate kickstart here's our project that we want to get funded and then people all over the world go i'm into that <clears throat> crowdfunded and then because of tokenization which is a weird new thing but a really critical part of all this they can actually, the tokens work two ways. One, by buying the tokens, they give them people the money, so it's not just a donation. So they're actually getting almost like something like stock in it. They get some uh, sort of digital, unique digital identifier of their participation that, you that know, maybe... Up, that could go up in value over time if, as more people use it, right? Maybe tradable if... So it if, actually if becomes an investment. Might even be a very good investment. I think uh, if we if we do two things there, one, we lower the barrier to actually contributing, so crowdsourcing the problems. So I can look on there and go like, you know, I want to. I like. I, I was down in Brazil last year, and I was in Florianopolis, and and they want to build a microgrid. I'm in. I've got friends there. Won't invest. So that's one level. Lower lower the ease of of supporting uh, climate projects all over the planet. So we get the billion projects. And secondly, then. Oh, uh, I'm not just giving them money. They're actually giving me tokens. This little thing called Bitcoin started 10 years ago, and it went from zero market cap. Today, it's at nearly $200 billion in market cap. If I had bought a Bitcoin when it was 10 cents, if I had bought 10 Bitcoins at 10 cents, right, for a dollar, because uh, it was 10 cents at the time, that, that would be worth $100,000 today. Yeah. So, uh, so cryptocurrencies are, are very interesting. Uh, if you build a service that more people want to use over time, the value of the token rises. And so that's a new form of uh, stock investing in a way. And so if, uh, if you're building a global power company, let's say, 
that's uh, microgrids that's spreading all over the planet and people are investing in them and they're being built and we've partnered with solar panel companies and other kinds of things to put to put them together almost like erector set kits so they get shipped right to the job site and built and cameras on them and everybody's helping the local people build them and everything you know what I mean it's an awesome project well hell that's amazing you know what I mean you really got something uh, really extraordinary at that point people all over the world can go like okay we need this for our village you know and they can download it and then we're co-investors with them you see what I mean we we co-own the power company in a, in a way because we provided the money for the microgrid uh, then as the user base grows then the token value grows so so we're getting our money back even if we just break even it's awesome because we're contributing like crazy and you know we we would do it i think we'd do it even at a donation level if the barriers to entry were low and we could see specifically where our money's going mm-hmm. so tracking everything tracking the money flow is really critical that's another thing blockchains do well they have an immutable record of what's happening and so it's open accounting right there. So we could have an open record. So as the money transfers to whatever, and that you know, you see it all. Uh, so the blocks go on. Well, so so let's dig in there a little bit. My understanding of versus is it is compatible with blockchain, but not blockchain. Meaning, you you guys can like your protocol can interoperate with many different blockchain protocols. Can you tell me a little bit about? what the relationship between versus as like a namespace and any given blockchain that people may be choosing to use as their immutable ledger. What's the relationship there? And what's the, let's start with just what's the relationship there? No, no, absolutely. So if you look at any computer uh, software program, uh, you basically have uh, three levels to it. Uh, You've got the interface level, what the human sees, that's the front end of it. You've got the actual logic, hit this button, do this, save this, whatever, right? That's the logic layer of the, of the program. Calculate this, whatever it is. And then you've got a data layer. You can store the results of what the program just did or pull up prior results and work on them more, right? Just like a spreadsheet or anything, okay? So um, as we move uh, through time, those three tiers change over time. So in the 1980s, the big breakthrough was... Um, a graphical user interface. The Mac came out and yet instead of typing in move to trash, you actually just pull it down to a little trash can. And then Windows copied it as well. And then we got these graphical user interfaces and that was our interface. And then our logic layer was like Word and Excel and programs like that. And our data layer was our hard drive. Or, and we thought this was amazing because computers up until that time uh, were really large scale, expensive things that companies own. You didn't have a personal computer. But once you got a personal computer, now you could have it on your desk and you had compute power that only companies had prior to that. And that was Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak's original vision is like, well, we're going to unleash a revolution by giving everybody a computer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, this is a computer, right? I mean, this is not a phone. So a phone's like 5% of this thing. So, um, so that's the three tiers. Uh, you got your interface tier, you got your logic tier, and then you got your data tier. And then in the uh, 1990s, we got the World Wide Web. All three tiers changed. The interface became the browser. The logic became a website. And the data became a web server. And each time we think, this is it. 
wow, this is amazing. We got we not only have personal computers, we not only have email, but now and programs and everything, but now we have the World Wide Web. This is amazing. We can shop at Amazon, we can go to Yahoo, we can Google things up, we got Wikipedia. I mean, this is pretty cool. <laughs> and everybody just thinks this is it. This is the way it's gonna be. I mean, this we've made it. This is Valhalla. This is as good as it gets, right? And then Steve Jobs walks in one day and he goes, well, I've got this idea here. We could make a little tiny computer that you carry around in your purse or your pocket. And uh, it's got these new things on it called apps, and you just touch screens. We got a new interface, we got a new logic layer, uh, apps, and we got a new data layer, cloud. Now, what's cool is we still use the other layers. We still go and surf the web. Uh, we might go shop at Amazon, we might prefer to shop at Amazon on our laptop, so we're on the web. Or uh, we might still write a Word doc and attach it to an email and send it to one of our friends if we're writing a book or something. So we still use all the tiers, but 80% of our time is in the new tier. Mm -hmm. Now, these tiers change about every 15 years. Why? Well, because the exponential march of technology, Moore's Law, other kinds of things, network speeds increase, chip speeds increase, and we can do more. So it's been... Since uh, the iPhone was launched, uh, so that was uh, 2007. So we're in about 12 years. And prior to that, we were uh, we did the web, I think, in uh, 94. So that was kind of 13 years. And then that was a big jump from uh, the well, introduction of the personal computer was in kind of 1980. So it was about 14 years. And then the, the Internet itself was created in 1969. Uh, so that was another you know, 10, 12 years or so. So uh, we're due for a, a change. Ships <laughs> uh, speeds have doubled every 18 months or 20 months or so. Uh, network speeds are so fast that we can get Netflix on our, uh, on our phones. So um, we're ready for a, a three-set stack, right? Yeah. So what's the new interface? Well, what did Apple just announce? And what's all, all the excitement about? Augmented reality glasses, virtual reality goggles. I mean, what is it about that? Oh, we have binocular vision developed over 500 million years since the Cambrian explosion. These are really valuable. And so we can build a three-dimensional world by just offsetting. These are two 2D cameras, but they're offset by five degrees. So we can build the whole world in 3D in our minds, right? Oh, well, then that's the interface. We should have an interface for each eye offset by five degrees so that we can see everything in 3D because that's the way we function and make decisions. We have great pattern recognition. So we're really good at working in 3D space. Well, the only 3D spaces we could do up until now were inside a computer game. Uh, but that was a dedicated game and a computer because of the graphics chips and you're moving characters around in three-dimensional space and having to redraw it all the time. Well, that became really easy over the last few years because exponential, as you know, normal growth is like 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Exponential growth is 1, 2, 4, 8. 16, 32, 64. And when it goes around, it's called going around the knee. When it goes around the knee, you're starting to get massive amount of change in short periods of time. And that's where we are right now. And so now we can take all that experience we have in computer gaming, all that experience we have in architecture and building our buildings all in 3D, all of our cars are designed in 3D. We can take all of that, all the special effects in movies are all in 3D. We can now take all of that and bring it online. We couldn't do it up until this moment. Five, uh, we, we went, we, in a way, it really begins next year, really, as these network speeds continue to increase. But uh, we've kind of reached that threshold. And so 
you need a new protocol at that point uh, to handle all of that new data. And so that's the new three step. So the new interface is three-dimensional. You can still see it on a, a 2D screen, just like you play a 3D game in 2D. But if you've got glasses, wow, it's fully in 3D, right? Augmented reality and virtual reality. Augmented reality is that you put a pair of glasses on, you can still see the world, but now you can see things in the world. So a holographic character could talk to you. Right? But in virtual reality, you put the goggles on, you don't see the physical world anymore. You're in an alternate world. You might be at Hogwarts school or you might be on the surface of Mars. And so those two uh, systems are coming on stream right now while we're having this conversation. They're just, it's one of the fastest growing parts of the market. So that's the new interface tier. Then the new logic tier, because we obviously are all three tiers changed the same. They, they never stayed in the previous one. The new logic tier moves from apps to smart contracts with artificial intelligence. So AI uh, really becomes an important part. We just open any, open any Google thing and look at the news around tech. It's shoot, AI's number one. If you, if you start off with uh, the old original software clear back in uh, the 40s when they were trying to crack the Enigma code in uh, England, I mean, that was basically mathematics. You know, can you solve this problem for me? And of course, the computer can solve it way faster than a whole team of mathematicians and especially thousands of problems uh, simultaneously. So that logic here, when you look at it, Alan Turing in 1946 went, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, these computers are going to equal human intelligence at some point in the future. So this is at the dawn when they're just doing math. Alan Turing, we call it the Turing test, still do this thing. Alan Turing's sitting there and he's going like, oh my God, this is an artificial brain. <laughs> and so the, the concept of Turing completeness is essentially that would be possible if there was enough, arguably possible if there's enough compute power behind it, that the smart contract, for instance, reaches an intelligent level. Is that kind of an accurate way of restating something? Yeah, I think that's fair enough. I mean, uh, it basically says, I mean, look, one of the arguments was, uh, yeah, computers can play chess, but they can't beat a grandmaster. I mean, that's too subtle. And of course, they beat a grandmaster in 1995, <laughs> deep blue, right? And like, oh, yeah, okay, kind of chess is kind of mathematics, so that's not really a good test to whether they're smart. Uh, although it had been up until that point. <laughs> I said, well, it can, never, it can never get into the subtleties of the English language. And, and really, uh, you could always tell. And uh, so they said, well, how about if uh, we uh, have it play Jeopardy against the Jeopardy champion? And so in 2012, uh, it beat the Jeopardy champion <laughs> with really subtle slang. And you know how those Jeopardy questions are to fill in. And uh, Watson uh, just beat the two top Jeopardy champions. And then it beat the game of Go recently. So all that's really pointing out is that that intelligence which started out, what's one plus one equals two? What's the square root of 49, seven? You know, I mean, that's kind of early, what the early computer did. From there to here is, you know, 70 years, and it's beating us to chess. And it's, and it's exponential. So that means it's going around the knee of the curve. So it's beating us to chess now, right? But but it's obviously on a growth like that. Our intelligence kind of growing, you know, let's say at 5% a year or 10% a year as a human species or something, as our science and everything advances. But the AI is probably growing at 50% a year. Well, at some point, you get the lines crossing there. And Ray Kurzweil, who's head of uh, R&D at Google, 
is calculating that AIs will probably cross human intelligence in the 2029 to 2039, somewhere in the 2030s or 2040s. But even if he's a little early. Individual, even, like as an individual or collective, what's the, what's? Individual, uh, individual first and then collective second, right? I mean, you know. So yes. what's the, you know, what's your take on this sort of debate and argument between folks like Elon Musk who are sort of like, hey, everybody, this is alarming and scary and may portend the end of humanity as we know it, and other people who are more optimistic, like, hey, this is fantastic. This is a great opportunity for all of us to get smarter together. What's the... Yeah, what's well, obviously, the I, come down, I obviously come down in the second half of that. But yeah. it's good to remember that Plato was very concerned about reading. He thought maybe reading was a bad idea because it would blow our long-term memories. Well, and, that's true. Uh, but I'm just saying, but the trade-off was worth it. <laughs> it actually, well, I mean, you know, it's hard to know. I mean, I, I've met some, I've been privileged to meet some human beings in my life who were at least raised in a non-literate context with lots of storytelling and lots of hands-on engagement with their world and, you know, sort of like loved and nurtured, not in not in what we would think of as poverty, but sort of like an intentional yeah. mythopoetic richness that allowed their brains to sort of fully actualize to something. And then they learned to read later. So it's not necessarily either or, but man, I am blown away. By- I've, learned a lot. I've learned a lot from books. I'll put it that way. I'm really grateful that we have reading. I mean, if I had to count on oral tradition to get all my knowledge. Oh, yeah. And no, I, no, I'm not arguing that, but I am, I am making a point that there's, a, there's like a human potential I've experienced. Oh, it's amazing. I'm not arguing that. I think what I'm really saying is the metaphysical question today, the metaphysical question 100, 150 years ago was, uh, is there God? Or do you believe in God? Or is, is there God? The metaphysical question today is, is there evolution? Do you believe in evolution? Do you believe that your life, that this human body, which now our archaeologists and paleontologists have figured out, kind of popped up here on the planet around 200,000 years or so ago. Uh, Before that, they can trace the fossil record all the way back to the Cambrian explosion 500 million years ago. It's filling in pretty nicely. So we see the tree of life pretty clearly. Now, is that a product of evolution? Yeah, of course. We, we understand evolution. Dr. Charles Darwin wrote a wonderful book about it, right? And we validated it over time. So evolution's happening. So my, and, and we're the tip end of one of the branches of the tree right now of, of life, right? I mean, we're a high-end high, high state of evolution. And so uh, my question is, metaphysically, do you believe it's stopping us? Or is evolution still coming through our hands right now? And I think it comes through our creations and the way it works in the world, the way it works in all evolutionary uh, activities is uh, it tries 10 things. One of them works and then it uses that pathway to go forward. There were, there were many, many other uh, hominid species other than us, the Denisovians and the Neanderthals were around. And, uh, but the, uh, the, the combination of the human brain and body was just right. And it just like, plump. and we've obviously flourished uh, like men. And then, of course, now that's a problem. We've got to count on the evolution of our minds to solve the problem because we're so good at uh, exploiting every uh, environmental niche on the planet that we're actually in danger of destroying the planet, you know. Yeah, so, I mean, there's a couple different branches there conversation we could get into sort of evolutionary determinism or whatnot but but i'm actually interested in taking a step back and sort of something i said earlier so 
if our creations, if technology itself starts to take on essentially the qualities of life, and by that I mean it is evolutionary and it is evolving first with our support and then maybe of its own accord, and then we have a relationship with that. Like another premise here, just to weave into this question, sorry, it's a little complex, but premise, um, Charles Darwin never said survival of the fittest. No, I agree. He said survival of the fit. And what he meant by that was how well do organisms cooperate and fit into their environment? He also said, he also said it's not the strongest, it's not the smartest, it's not the fastest, it's the ones that adapt exactly. to, the, to the changing circumstances. So what does it look like in your mind's eye for humans as individuals and as a society to adapt to this new, we might say, Cambrian explosion level of change that is being precipitated right now? Uh, by the way, I think, I think you captured something really important, Greg, that a lot of people are missing. And that is, um, this is very similar to 1500 uh, and the explosion of ideas in the Renaissance. It was science, it was art, it was new ideas in religion, philosophy, uh, writing, uh, and you name it. It was just this beautiful flowering uh, that happened. Uh, honored the past, moved into the future, reached back to the Greeks, reached back to, you know, in time and got the great uh, teaching from the past, brought them forward, understandings about where we are in the world and heliocentric theory and all the rest of it. Uh, it was really a beautiful moment. We, and we just talk about the Renaissance, like, oh my God, it's like a, it's kind of a second Garden of Eden almost, right? We're at the front edge of another Renaissance, no doubt. I completely agree with you. This is a, if we do it right, this is the next Renaissance. And uh, uh, it'll make uh, the last one <laughs> look like kindergarten. You know, this is the explosion of ideas and qualities and breakthroughs in health and genetics and uh, stem cell work and CRISPR. I mean, it's just unbelievable what, uh, what's pouring out, uh, aside from what's happening on the information side. And of course, uh, a lot of our ideas now are becoming uh, information, and information grows exponentially. That was Kurzweil's great uh, insight in his wonderful book, The Singularity is Near. I really recommend it to everybody. He's got a lot of great data in there. So we're in, we're in kind of, an, you could argue it's an exponential economy that we're stepping into. That's a good name for it. Uh, an easier name for it is superabundance. But superabundance that actually doesn't damage the planet. I mean, that's the game playing right now. Because what happened, if you go back to 1400, uh, before the Renaissance, I mean, life was tough in Europe. I mean, well, and, and I think it's important to also acknowledge that Arguably, if you just look at it from sort of the economic foundations of the Renaissance, were essentially the rape and pillage of the New World and the death of millions and millions of indigenous people. And that's what fueled the economic prosperity that, that was the foundation for the Renaissance. And I don't say that, I don't say that to sort of like undermine what you're saying, but I say it to sort of like insert that foundation of of reality. And is that analogy going to be true in this transition right now? Do we have to somehow go through some sort of violent upheaval or metabolize, you know, some part of the world? Like, I don't think so. I don't think so. I, um, and why not then? So, so here, here's just an, uh, uh, sometimes it's helpful to talk through analogies. Mm -hmm. So in uh, 1970, uh, one of the largest organizations in the world was the U.S. Post Office. And you put all the post offices together all over the world, from England and Europe and China and everywhere else, and a massive, 
massive project all over the planet. Every town had a post office, trucks, mail moving all over the place, airlines. I mean, you know, a lot of the airlines uh, started uh, as uh, mail carriers because they didn't get contracts. So this is a vast thing. I mean, billions of dollars, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people all over the planet. I mean, it's an amazing, amazing thing. And then uh, some guy, some people here, here at, uh, at uh, Stanford and UCLA and a few other places said, we got this idea. If we create uh, something called this thing, like a network of networks, we'll call it an internet. And we can send messages over it for free anywhere in the world uh, in real time. And they launched four computers in 1969 to test the idea. And uh, obviously that's grown a little bit since then. I don't know, maybe we probably have like uh, 10 billion computers minimum today. Uh, fiber optic cables all over the planet, satellites all over the planet. This internet is like the largest undertaking humanity's ever undertaken by far. It makes NASA look like a high school science project. This is a massive global undertaking that's happened, right? So this is hard to remember because we're kind of like fish in the ocean. We, yeah. live, we live with it. We go like, oh, yeah, the internet. No, 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 no. Historically, you pull back and look at the lens of history. We started this with four computers in 1970. There's yeah. no internet incorporated. There's no like large corporation driving. This is not Apple or Google. They're products of the internet. The internet is decentralized. Nobody's in charge of it. It just grows. You can go buy a computer and plug into it today. You can build a website today. You don't have to ask any permission. Yeah, you, can, you can lay some line and plug into you can you lay know, some line. You know, on ISP. You can yeah. make your hard drive available to other people to store information. I mean, it's amazing. So a lot of people don't get the radicalness of that because the most important thing about the Renaissance wasn't the rape and pillage of the new world. Uh, that, that just was a product of cultures coming into contact for the first time and, and having uh, all, all the normal things that have happened for the previous five million years because the, we're on the Neanderthals today, right? I mean, people just battle things out. That's just the way, the way it works. But the most important part of the Renaissance was in 1450, they invented the printing press. Mm -hmm. Now, in 1450, there were nine million people living in Europe. Nine million people. How many of those people read. There were no bookstores. There were no schools in 1450. I mean, you didn't go to school. You were a farmer or you were a uh, soldier. And you were, if you're a kid, you're growing up and then you just start working on the farm or you join uh, the army. I mean, there wasn't a lot of options. You weren't, there weren't bookstores that you went down to the corner and bought a book. Books cost $50,000 or more. They were hand done by scribes. Uh, so if you're a royal family, you might have a small library. But, I mean, it took a scribe a year to three years to write a book and give it to you. Well, in today's terms, even at 30000 a year, and that's a $90,000 book for every three years. So books were pretty rare. Uh, the church had them. Royal families had them. But there weren't bookstores, right? People didn't read. They were illiterate. So printing press starts in 1450 to make Bibles, right? By 1500, there were 20 million books in circulation in Europe and people were reading like crazy and learning to read and, and literacy was growing rapidly. And it created the foundation for scientific revolution and the breakthroughs and even the you know compasses and everything that were needed to travel around the world. So 50 years ago, this time, those four computers were fired up. The internet began right on schedule. 50 years ago today, I mean, literally, almost literally today, probably, but I think it was in 1969, so it's been 50 years. And uh, 
Guess what's coming again? Another freaking renaissance. Will we have tremendous dislocation and strangeness? Yeah, we probably will. It takes going to take us a while to sort it out. Picasso had this great quote, remarkable. He goes, uh, you know, he had his blue period, and then he kind of went into his cubist period or whatever the, whatever the names of the uh, periods were. But he said, when I was ending one phase of my art and kind of feeling drawn into this next era, or chapter, he said, uh, the paintings in there uh, were kind of ugly. It took me a while to make them figure out how to make them beautiful. And so he said, but now I'm an old man. He said, those are my favorite paintings. Mm, mm-hmm. The crossover is so difficult and beautiful and strange, and it brings so much out of you. And we evolve a lot through that. And so uh, as we create uh, superabundance on the planet, uh, because that's what happened even in the Renaissance, uh, as we have machines now, 3D printers, you're going to be able to print a house in like 10 or 15 years. It's just taking the dirt out of the ground and uh, converting it with various kinds of nanotechnology or whatever. You can, have, you can build a beautiful home that costs like $2 million today, probably for 20 grand, maybe 200,000 max, but certainly way, way less, right? When Gutenberg did the printing press, let's say I put dollars But when I put the book online, now the book is free. Millions of people can read the book for free. And a good, good point for me to plug my new book. Uh, I, wrote, I wrote a book called The Spatial Web. Yeah. Uh, about right. all this. And uh, by the way, you can get it on uh, Kindle for 99 cents. So it's not a huge uh, hammer. And so uh, what that does is now I'm able to give millions of people a book for a dollar or free at some point. And uh, well, what's that do if you used to have to spend, I don't know, a lot of money on CDs, you know? Yeah. All of us that are in the music, we calculate how much budget we had, and we'd go buy like five CDs, and we wanted another 50 of them because there was some, such great music that we couldn't afford it. Now, boom, every song in the history of the world is on Spotify and, and Amazon and all these music services that are available for us at, at a pretty low subscription fee a month of like, you know, 10 bucks or so. So, um, so what's happening is uh, digitization is lowering the cost of things and the uh, the next generation, uh, the Greta generation, and, and uh, I would say the 15 to 30-year-olds right now, are becoming less interested in buying things than in uh, having experiences. They're really, they're really coming to that realization. It's, and part of it is ecological awareness. They realize that, hey, buying more stuff doesn't really help the planet. I mean, it's subconscious maybe even. But uh, more than that, they're starting to change their values. It's not about surrounding yourself and keeping up with the Joneses and having a bigger house and a, and a bigger car. It's really about becoming a, a bigger person, travel and learning and uh, meditating. I mean, meditation is huge right now, mindfulness and other kinds of things. So I just wanted to say, I think that uh, there is that shift that's, uh, that's taking so, so that's all great. And my, my next question, and then I want to sort of bridge back into the um, – cooperation between region network and versus yeah sure great goofy thing but, <laughs> but my last question in this sort of line is if you were going to give advice to you know maybe someone in that 15 to 30 year age bracket or maybe even better to the parents of someone whose child has been just born what advice would you give as far as what is it going to mean to be human and how do we prepare ourselves for being fit and cooperative 
And when I say fit, like actually fitting, <laughs> fitting the world that is becoming. Well, I mean, I think uh, the, the novel Neuromancer uh, was written by William Gibson. And he has one of the greatest quotes. And he goes, uh, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. Yeah, that's a great quote. Yeah, it's a great quote. And so uh, the Dalai Lama is the Dalai Lama. I mean, you know, <laughs> he's kind of setting, he's setting a mark out there. There's people like that, uh, whether they're Nobel Prize winners or whether they're uh, great artists or whatever. Um, they're kind of drawing the line out there for evolution to drive toward. And the Dalai Lama is running around the planet teaching compassion and how to handle anger and how to work together and how to live in community. Um, and so I think, obviously, uh, these kinds of principles are the new principles. And uh, we're being driven to them because it's the only way we're going to survive. And it's how we got here originally. I would say the, uh, the last 500 years is more of an really... If, if humans came onto the planet it's roughly 200-some thousand years ago, for 195,000 years at that time, we were hunter-gatherers. It's only really been the last 5,000 years. We, we invented agriculture, and we discovered it maybe eight or 10,000 years ago, but we had, it wasn't widespread until four or 5,000 years ago. And then uh, this modern mass production capitalist society is only, really, it just began in 1500, and really, it's been really active in the last 200 years. So in a way, you could argue that in the grand scope of our lives, these are anomalies where we learn how to exploit the planet in various ways, one by growing things and the other by digging things out of the ground, iron ore, making steel, oil, making gasoline, you know, that kind of thing. That that phase may be passing, and that was a short-term kind of period that we went through until we evolved up out of it. So, I mean, what, one of the fun things I tell people is, like, just watch a, watch a bunch of Star Trek movies. I mean, look, how, look how we are. I mean, this, this is Gene Roddenberry kind of trying to show the best of humanity. Uh, we're, we're very open hearted and really don't interfere with other people help where you can, you know, that kind of thing. And so, um, so I thought Gene Roddenberry was a really great artist around that kind of drawing some lines into the future. Like this is what's possible for humanity. We can have starships. We can, uh, we can be free of, uh, of want. We, nobody's going hungry in our society. Everybody's taken care of. Like if you look at your human body, when you eat food, every cell in your body participates in the nutrition. Well, we need a nervous system for that. That's why we invented nervous <laughs> Well, you got that. Now with, uh, with all these exponential technologies we have, like blockchains and uh, uh, like cryptocurrencies and like artificial intelligence and like uh, virtual reality, with all these beautiful exponential technologies, finally being able to all work together and we direct them toward where we want that thermostat set, the 72 degrees or even maybe 74 because we don't want to uh, heat up the house that much then uh, we got an interesting new game we can play together here. And we are historically, uh, someone once said, uh, they've done these studies on humanity and uh, we're basically pretty altruistic. We're actually really good people. We really like to work together for things. So when you really pull back and look at it, we're a bunch of uh, really good altruistic people kind of governed by psychopaths. Yeah. So, so the altruistic people, there was a thing in the Wall Street Journal a few years ago that said, if the, middle, if the middle class never understood the power of the vote, boy, they could really change everything. And so clearly uh, it's everything that we've been talking about, the points you brought up and the points I brought up. It's, it's this handshake between uh, awakening, uh, education, uh, spiritual development, being more sensitive, being more compassionate, caring for the earth more. Uh, then understanding the danger signs, 
uh, scientists all over the world are going, hey, there's a billion less birds in uh, North America right now than there were 50 years ago. What? No, what? No, 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 no. Bees are having collapse, high collapse problems. Uh, coral reefs are bleaching. I mean, uh, the signs are there, right? I mean, you know, you went to see a doctor and you had all these splotches all over your body and everything. Doctor going, we're going to we're going to get take care of you. Need some, you need some carrier. Stop what you're doing and let's calm down. And here, let's get you on proper nutrition and bring you back to health. So the planet is definitely giving us all those signs. So I, I, I feel like uh, uh, this is that that moment where we are awakening and uh, we're getting all the signs. And young people are getting it first because they're going like, "Hey, you guys are out of here in ten or twenty years. <laughs> You're leaving us. You know, the house the house is like." practically gutted you know so wake up and help us save this planet because for us and our children you know we'd like to have what you have and uh, i think that 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 voice is going to come from young people up and we're starting to see it and i think it's extraordinary and people like you and i that are working in these areas obviously we're from the generations that's causing the problem uh, so uh, but we're voices in our generation that kind of speak about it as intelligently and articulately as we can, try and build things that might be helpful and then join our technologies together collaboratively so that, you know, we get scale and, and uh, capabilities. You're, you know things I don't know and I know things you don't know. As we combine our tech, then suddenly we've got a, a synergy, right? One plus one makes five. And so Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's make that arithmetic work out. How can we and other perhaps, because I think this podcast is sort of subscribed to by people who are sort of at this intersection of technology and economics and the ecological imperative of our day. I think most of us are sort of proponents of and participants in the open source movement. So what, what does it look like to engage with Versus as an open source project and, uh, you know, how can Region Network and others be engaging with Versus Foundation, uh, Versus Labs? What is ideal for you all to drive towards the potential that you're seeing for this technology? No, no, no. Thanks, Greg. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I, uh, I, I've been feeling this project for a long time. I've been saying for a long time that until we can charge the right price for trees, uh, they'll keep cutting them down. <laughs> so uh, now we've got the toolkit to do that. And that's one of the driving uh, forces behind Versus. Uh, but yeah, so what we did is uh, we recognized uh, that the World Wide Web was really well done in so many ways. Uh, nobody can own it. Uh, anybody's free to use them. HTTP, HTML, it's open source, uh, and revolving. They've got teams of people all over the world around them suggesting improvements and upgrades. And so, uh, so it's evolving. It's an evolving system. And it's not owned by Apple or Google or Facebook or anybody like that. And so, therefore, uh, I can see the web from my smart, from my iPhone or my Android phone or my laptop or millions of other kinds of devices. Whereas uh, at the app level, uh, they're captured by the operating system of the phone. So, Apple apps run on Apple phones and iOS, but they won't run on an Android phone. And I have to rewrite my code to run over there if I'm a developer. So then, uh, so then I've got a separate, separate set over there, and they don't talk to each other. Well, when we start putting on glasses, then, uh, and I'm looking around the world, uh, oh, I can only see some of the things, you know, because my glasses are only compatible with the, no, 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 it's got to be an open source. So we, so we created the Versus Foundation, put the protocols in the foundation, free to use for anybody in the world. And then, uh, because we built the protocols, we kind of know how to build tools to use them. You don't have to use our tools, you can write your own tools. But we said, hey, 
to like WordPress, it's a way easier way to make an early website than starting with raw HTML code, right? And so, so we said, okay, why don't we build some tools to help people build applications on the protocol? Yeah, sort of like a the classic Red Hat model where, you know... Yeah, Linux, Red, Linux open source, and then uh, Red Hat says, hey, uh, if you want to run uh, a cloud uh, service, a football field-sized warehouse full of computers, uh, that open source probably doesn't have the support and other kinds of things around it that would be needed. So we're Red Hat, so we'll take the open source, that's free, then we'll build tools around it to help you then manage 5,000 computers if you're a, a service center. And so we did exactly that. Yeah, we, we created Versus Labs, and then we build uh, tools, and then we partner with the Esri's of the world, the Unities of the world, the other really cool companies doing things uh, in the world, and ultimately anybody, uh, we're open, we have an open model. And so we work with, every blockchain, we worked with every AI, and we worked with every AR, VR uh, device. We talked to all the IOTs. If you look at our board, we've got people from uh, IOT, we've got people from AI, we've got people from blockchain, we've got people from VR, we've got people from robotics. Uh, so we're, we're, we're partnering with the edge technologies, not specifically, but in general, to let any edge technology work with any other edge technology. Well, that's a handy tool. Now, it's up to the developers of the world to figure out what to do with that cool tool. Right, we're not telling you what to do with it, but obviously, Regen could take that tool and do things with it, and uh, General Motors can use that tool and do things with it. But whoever uses the tool, what we have found is it tends to make companies more sustainable. We're able to do more with less because that's what tools do. That's why we have a shovel. Digging by hand isn't as good, and so the shovel gives you some momentum there. And so the tool, the tool, even when it's used by traditional companies will actually make them more sustainable over time. So we think it's a pretty cool tool. So basically Versus Labs builds the tools and Versus Foundation provides the protocols. Uh, and that way they're, they're not owned and controlled by us because they need to be separate and in their own world, surrounded by you know kind of loving uh, uh, technologists that are trying to make it work better for everybody. And that way we've kind of modeled it exactly after the original World Wide Web. Then you get companies that would normally be competitive Let's say that I've got glasses from Apple over here, and I've got glasses from Magic Leap over here, and I've got glasses from Microsoft HoloLens over here. Well, now with Versus, they can all see the same thing. Right. Right. Up until that, they could. Like, just like with Chrome or Safari, or and right. the same being true uh, with the you know blockchain, whether you're running um, you know ethereum or some side chain of bitcoin or cosmos or whatever it might be um, yeah just, and just for clarity there i think that that's that's a real key point so blockchains are obviously going to be an extraordinary thing in human history um, they're still young uh, they still have flaws uh, but they're evolving uh, every year i mean and, and we know ethereum 2 is coming lightning networks and all kinds of things for bitcoin and other kinds of xrps they're all evolving and growing by 2025 they'll probably be reaching a pretty nice level of maturity uh, but the problem is, if I'm a big organization, whether I'm a non-government uh, organization or a government organization or a privately held uh, company, this blockchain thing, I, it's interesting, but I want to experiment with it. And so what we did when we did our stack, we called the data layer. That's just the data layer. And so you can have mix of like 10 different blockchains doing 10 different things, one for identity, one for land titles, but you can also be still pulling things from your cloud. So the logic is just going, go find me that information, that, that data. Oh, that data just happens to be on a blockchain. You can go get it. So you as a developer now can build without having to commit 
to one blockchain forever. You can just plug in blockchains as you and oh, this new thing just came out. Wow. Or EOS has a big breakthrough. Wow. Use, you know. What, uh, what programming language is versus predominantly written in? So uh, the, the, the way that you develop on it would be in, in normal Java, JavaScript, uh, C. You've got a lot of tools up here because it's like a middleware, a middleware layer. You're not actually coding on the blockchain. You're up here uh, coding your application, which then uses blockchain technology or AR, VR or, or not. Yeah. So you use whatever edge technologies you want. And so you're, you can start simply, built like any normal MVP type of uh, minimum viable product application. And then you can grow the thing over time. And that's how we see the, the migration to blockchains, the migration to AI, the migration to AR, VR, the migration to robotics and IoT devices, these kinds of things. Uh, they'll, they'll go slowly over time and developers will learn and companies will, and organizations will try things. And then, oh, that's working great. Let's do more of that. And that's the path that evolution always takes. And so what we've done is kind of unleash some of those evolutionary forces. By, that's what tools do. Uh, one, when a new protocol drops, new things can form. And before uh, the World Wide Web protocol, you couldn't make Amazon, Google, Yahoo, Facebook, all these things. Uh, before the iPhone dropped, you couldn't do Yelp, Uber, uh, Airbnb, all these things. So uh, spatial protocols, as they come in, are going to unlock things that we can't even imagine. Services that brilliant you know, young people in Senegal or in uh, New Delhi or wherever are coming up with and sharing with the world. So that's an exciting part of it all. So by making the protocols completely independent of us, so nobody has to call us to use them, uh, then that unleashes any friction there. And then by us just making better and better tools, then, hey, if they're better than what's available, anything else that's available and at a fair price, then, yeah, use these tools. But if you, you can make a better tool, Please go ahead and make it. We, it'll, it'll advance uh, the whole the whole game for everybody. Now, in relationship to your partnership with Esri, is that between the foundation or versus lab? And is that you know, are you building open source protocol stuff, or are you integrating versus into their proprietary sort of wallet? So, so, so what we noticed is, uh, if you're trying to do a smart state, you're using Esri Maps. If you're trying to manage your forest, uh, whether it's a rainforest or whether it's in Canada or whatever, you're using Esri Maps. I mean, they're the best in the world. They've got all the data. So what we, we called them and we said, hey, we've got this kind of new idea called uh, the spatial web, open standards, all that. And uh, we can link now uh, your ArcGIS software, which is really used by everybody, to blockchains and to AI and to smart contracts and all that. So not only do you get information about what's in the world, but when this moves to this, it can trigger a smart contract to make this payment or, or alert this person, or when this IoT device reaches a certain level, it sends out an alarm or whatever it is, right? So uh, that's a whole new level of capability. So then we worked with Esri to uh, provide versus capabilities to the 350,000 organizations worldwide that use Esri software. And so that's why we like to work with them because they already have, they've got offices in 80 countries. They're on the ground in every area with all the resource managers. And so here's a new tool to extend it. And so that's why we work with them. Uh, it, just, it just makes sense. We're doing the same thing with Unity and 70% uh, of all AR VR is made in, uh, inside uh, the Unity game engine. Uh, whether that's for medical or educational applications, uh, it's not just for gaming. And so uh, by, uh, by making our stuff work really well with that, then all the people that are building things in Unity suddenly have 
all these new capabilities, blockchains, cryptocurrencies, new kinds of AI to apply in their normal gaming framework without Unity having to go through the pain of making all that happen. And it's open source and it's uh, an independent open standard so that it's spreading around the world. So your, your project would have the best chance of having an impact. So VR and AR have been called empathy technologies. Uh, and the reason they're called empathy technologies is because we're so used to looking in 3D. So when we put a pair of goggles or glasses on, uh, we feel it more deeply. And so we think by modeling planetary issues and uh, running simulations on what, could it, what, what it could be like in 10 or 20 years if we follow this path versus this path. Uh, we can help, we can help, help wake people up. Because a lot of people, we're hunter-gatherers, basically. I mean, look, 195,000 to 200,000 years we've been, been hunter-gatherers. Well, what, how long do hunter-gatherers think of? They're generally thinking six months out. Because they're not thinking five years out because they're living hand-in-glove with their environment. So they know winter's coming, so they can store stuff for that. But they're not having to think three to five years out because they're, it's, it's real time as a, as a hunter-gatherer. So here we are now. Uh, we're doing things that will have ecological impacts 50 years out from now uh, by, by current actions. And it's, we're getting not enough action at the voter level to stop that because it's hard for us to think long term. And that's where simulations and virtual reality and media really come in handy. I mean, you know. Uh, yeah, that's an exciting, uh, I think, proposition is the ability for people to connect in a visual experience that's scientifically accurate as to the consequences of different directions. Um, that's my point, right there. Yeah, of course. Now, now we got real data and, uh, and, and, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of people have children <laughs> at some level and you've got to face your kids and go like, okay, we're down here. We're, we're working, we're working to clean this up. You know what I mean? I think, um, I've got to run. Speaking of kids, I got to go uh, go grab my kid from his day school. And um, it's been such a pleasure to chat, Dan. And I want to follow up and have a more in-depth conversation about um, how we can start leveraging Versus yeah. in the work that we're doing. And um, yeah, I'm just really grateful that you took the time and grateful for your work. Uh, and I so appreciate what you guys are doing, uh, Greg. And, uh, and we're just, uh, I would say uh, the baby's just been born at Versus uh, recently. Uh, and I would say from, um, it was designed to kind of come to life in 2020 uh, in terms of the, uh, uh, the the maturing of it. So I would say first quarter uh, 2020 on, uh, it's, it's coming out nice and strongly with SDKs for other people to use and develop independently. Right now we're having to build everything in partnership with people but pretty pretty soon we can just provide the tools to anybody and they can do whatever they want with them and, and then we'll work with uh, you guys personally and uh, and brainstorm up uh, great applications together and then uh, deploy them yeah fantastic so whether we plug in post sort of sdk launch or if there's a way i mean we're actively working on ecological data layers i know yeah. all the time so if there's a way that we can do that um that is beneficial and creates more, I know it's always challenging, you know, sometimes it's not, it's like, sometimes it's not beneficial and sometimes it is. So we can kind of dig into that. I think that's sort of like a backlog and, you know, how much, but, I think you, and I, have, you know, <laughs> practical. You and I have a commitment to find the, the best way through there. Exactly. And we'll, and we'll do that. All right. Have Great, a brother. Thank you so much. Really nice. Really enjoyed it. Peace out. Cheers. Thank you.